0: I'm Trudy Morgan Cole, and you're listening to Shelf Esteem, the podcast where I talk to interesting people about books that they find interesting, and sometimes a little more than that. I did promise that the next episode of the podcast uh, would be a book swap with me and Emma, and we did, in fact, do a book swap, and we are getting ready to talk about it. We didn't have a chance to record that yet, and I decided to flip the episodes and, uh, in July, to talk to the person who's my guest today, who I'll be telling you about in a moment— uh, because there's something I wanted to talk to her about that is very timely and time-sensitive, and I wanted to get that uh, this episode out in time for uh, you to hear about it and be excited about her upcoming work. And then in August, we'll have the Book Swap episode where Emma and I talk about the two books we read this summer that each other recommended. But my guest for this episode is Leodon Helena. Leodon Helena, whose pronouns are she, they, negum, is an Ulnu playwright and artist uh, from the west coast of Newfoundland originally but currently living and working in St. John's and um, I'm going to talk to her a little bit more about her current work and about uh, an upcoming project that she has that I'm very excited about and I think you'll be interested in too. But of course first I started the interview as I always do by asking her what have you been reading lately that's really left a big impact on you?
1: Uh, The most recent thing I've read that stuck with me the most has been Tracing Ochre. Oh, yeah. The uh, anthology
0: edited by uh, Fiona Pollock, Which you loaned to me and also uh, left a big impact on me, but I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about about it and why it's been meaningful to you.
1: Um, It's just growing up in Newfoundland under the education system, we don't actually have access to a lot of information about the Mm biothic it's not presented to us like it's there but you have to go looking for it so it's a great compendium Mm -hmm. of just information and changing perspectives on settler indigenous relations and Mm -hmm. opened my eyes to a lot of patterns and a lot of ways colonialism affected me and everyone I knew in ways I didn't even
0: understand Yeah. yeah yeah I found the same thing you know coming from from the settler background and from the education that we got in Newfoundland when I grew up, which was in the 70s, you know, there was so much that, uh, that we didn't know or that wasn't talked about. And pretty much the only thing I remember being told is that, well, we came and our ancestors caused the extinction of the Beothic. Too bad. Whoopsie. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sorry we did that, but moving on. And then the perspective that, you know, that there was a continuity between these Beothic and indigenous people in the province today was, was never presented in my education.
1: No, no. And it's a shame because the your generation is about 20 years from my generation. Yeah. I grew up in the 90s, so mm-hmm. your generation would have been teaching my generation exactly, and all of those yes. same misconceptions would have been coming down the pipeline. Yeah, right?
0: things didn't really improve over that time period. So even if
1: we course. weren't directly reading some of the mythology mm-hmm. that... And the misrepresentations—they were still there in the yeah. way that we were talking to adults.
0: Yeah, yeah. You were talking. You were taught by people like me who had been raised in that that education system. So. You know, and you don't know what you don't know. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, yeah, and I, I'm I'm very grateful to you for loaning me that book. But it's interesting, uh, interesting to hear you talk about it too, and what it uh, what you learned from it that you might not have uh, not have otherwise known. Yeah. yeah. Um, in a more general sense, not just thinking of what you've been reading lately, but just generally. Um, is there a one book or maybe maybe a few books that you would say have been really influential on you?
1: Um, number one in my top three would be The Color Purple by okay. Alice Walker. I had seen little bits of the movie on TV when I was about twelve, mm-hmm. and I found it for fifty cents in a used bookstore, and I picked yeah. it up. And it was written in the vernacular, mm-hmm. and I had never read a book. That was written in the vernacular that mm-hmm. I understood so well. Yeah. And the uh, the speech patterns and learning how to... And it's um, queer black literature, mm-hmm. which just opened up an entirely new world of literature to me. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: I read that such a long time ago, but it, yeah, it lingers with me, too. It, uh, it would
1: be incredible. my absolute number one. Yeah?
0: Yeah. Any others?
1: Um, I made notes. Good. Um, the Collector by John Fowles. Okay, now I'm not familiar with that. Um, Tell me it's the same about author it. as The French Lieutenant's Woman. Oh, okay. Uh, John Fowles. It's a two section book from the point of view of a kidnapper and his hostage oh. in England in the seventies. Wow. And it's just so well written. I mean, it was written by a man, but the woman's perspective and the way he presents her mm-hmm. in her own mind is She's very intelligent, very capable, and it was unfortunately made into a really awful movie in the Ugh, 70s.
0: So often, the fate. Called of three it a romance, books.
1: and I was like, well, uh, it was a kidnapping.
0: but yeah, it was not a romance. Yeah, so don't ruin it for romance.
1: yourself and watch the movie. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the collector was really influential. And um, anything by Anais Nin when I was in my teens. Okay, yeah. why? Um, she wrote in a really sensual way that mm-hmm. I wasn't privy to a lot of those books. I wasn't drawn to things like Harlequin Romance or like V.C. Andrews. Right. But Anais Nin, just the poetry that she wrote and the way she wrote kind of lyrically, mm-hmm. I'd never read that kind of sexual representation on the page in a way that I understood so well. hmm So The Diary of Anais Nin, Henry and June, Spy yeah. in the House of Love, any of those. Right.
0: Um, what about books from your childhood? Are there books, when you look back, uh, you know, to books that were favorites or that you read when you were a kid, uh, that you feel maybe kind of, you know, influence or shape the person you became or, or the reader you became?
1: Um, I read a lot of series. Uh-huh. So one of the few series books, uh, series non-series books I read was uh, Where the Red Fern Grows by Wilson Rawls. Okay. Um, that was just a super sad book about dogs that... Oh. I reread it as an adult and I cried just as hard, you know. Mm-hmm. So like the writing yeah. it was a very mature story. It was like my lassie.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's or nothing...
1: sorry, my, uh, my old yeller.
0: <laughs> There's nothing sadder than a sad dog book or a sad dog song. My, my dad used to sing songs like, oh, um, Old Shep Has a Wonderful Home and uh, oh, other yeah, songs. Yeah. And I, I would just bawl and bawl as a Why kid. do people write these? I know. <laughs> but it really, it really connects. I was talking the other day to um, local author Terry Doyle, who yes. has a new book out called The Wards. And I had, when a couple of years ago when he was on this podcast, we had talked about a short story of his in which something... Bad Bad happens to a dog, and we had a conversation about that. Uh, us and I think Susie Taylor and we. I actually ended up calling the episode. We don't want anything bad to happen to the dog. <laughs> so uh, when Terry read the uh, the intro of his uh, his book at this event, and I and and there was a dog in it, and I said to him afterwards, I said, "I want to read your new book, but you got to tell me, are you going to kill that dog?" Because <laughs> and he said, "Well, like dogs are such a good way of writing about unlocking people's emotions." because absolutely because we do feel so strongly about animals and, yeah. yeah
1: so sometimes yeah. it's kind of a cheap shot it can be yes. but if it's done well like mm. in where the red fern grows it's yeah it's great yeah what about um, others i read a lot of series like goosebumps mm-hmm. big horror fan and goosebumps yeah. was kind of my my introduction to that uh-huh. um the silver wing series by kenneth Opal oh Silverwing, Sunwing, and Firewing wing about bats about bats yes oh gosh yeah. bats have been my favorite animal forever and oh my such goodness such a great book
0: this is where we diverge ways because i'm so creeped out by bats <laughs> and See, my, i think i think those books my kids might have like brought those home from school or something i was like no i'm not reading you the book about bats no my cousin
1: yeah. um researches bats that's oh, like, really? she um i think she's done her phd on stuff like that now I'm probably totally misrepresenting her uh-huh. but I know she studies bats uh-huh. and um Big lovers ever since yeah. childhood, yeah. Oh, wow. I don't know why.
0: It's a much healthier attitude than mine. I mean, they are quite harmless, so there's no reason for me to be terrified. I get
1: that people them. think they're creepy, they're like flying rats, but I also think rats are cute, so like, that doesn't oh. affect <laughs> you me. Don't,
0: you don't really have a rodent problem at all. <laughs> no, not even a
1: little. Um, I also read anything by Kit Pearson, especially like The Guest of uh, oh, War. Oh, yes, series.
0: those were great.
1: Um, yes. Oh, wow. I devoured Kit Pearson mm-hmm. novels when I was that age. She was writing about girls who had real feelings.
0: Yes. Like Nora.
1: And then she wrote about Gavin, and I got to see, like, a little boy's perspective of Mm -hmm. what was going on. Mm -hmm. It was really great.
0: Yeah, those were good. And um, my mom...
1: Watched and I read a lot of uh, Little House on the Prairie. Oh yeah! I had all the books when I was a kid. Uh-huh. I loved those books. I read them over and over and over again.
0: They are so durable. Like that's one thing that really spans generations. Like they were they were very hot when I was growing up in the seventies, and then of course they had a, a revival because of the TV series, and were very popular again. Over so the
1: next uh, my mom's generation's parents gave them to us. Yeah. So now they're yeah. coming out. I think with another. Um, there's talk of another TV oh, series. Wow.
0: So. So they'd be interesting, and and I know when I, I mentioned to you and I talked about you in the podcast, I think one of the first conversations you and I had about books was about the little house books yeah. and, and the portrayal of Indigenous people in them.
1: Yeah, because I had just picked up um, a copy of one of the first three books at a at a used bookstore, and um, within like the first chapter, there's some pretty negative language, mm-hmm. and the further you read into it, the more problematic, some of the views on Indigenous people were, mm-hmm. but I mean, she's writing, uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder is writing about her parents' generation
0: Yeah,
1: after, shortly after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. So...
0: And they it's were, to be expected. It was that whole uh, American, you know, settling of the West by by white uh, settlers. It was,
1: you know? and I mean, in the '70s when they came out with the TV show, like it was a lot better. It still had mm-hmm. a lot of white savior problems, but like if you love the TV show, I wouldn't recommend going back and reading the books. Yeah, necessarily. Because they
0: had they had softened a lot of those attitudes. Oh yeah, I think yeah. In the TV they're, series. I mean,
1: they're way more in line with like the optimistic and idealistic writers
0: in yeah. the writers'
1: rooms in the '70s. Yeah. You know, you can really see the the hippie Christian kind of influence in the show that's not there in the books. Yeah.
0: Interesting to see what they would do with that if they... Make a new series now because yeah. I mean, we've come that much further now, even since the time of the TV series. Hopefully, like, in fingers you know, crossed,
1: yeah. <laughs> gotta get Taika Waititi to work
0: on it. Oh, and, you yes, know, everything he touches turns to gold. Everything, yes, everything. Taika Waititi. unlike bats, we are 100% agree on Taika Waititi. <laughs> everything is fabulous. You've watched Our Flag Means Death, I assume. No, you? I haven't
1: caught up on oh, that. Oh, my goodness, I just yes. actually got around to watching um Reservation Dogs.
0: Okay, I haven't watched that yet. I so. would highly recommend I will watch one, you watch the other. Yes, yes, we'll definitely have to do that. This This is a book podcast but sometimes we also talk about tv shows we talk about brilliant people yes exactly brilliant creators um but i know that 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 thing it came up on the last podcast that i did with ainsley and andrew hawthorne because we were talking about peter pan as a children's class
1: oh yes very familiar yes
0: and talking about um you know the many problematic things in that including uh tiger lily and and portrayals of, of indigenous people in that yeah um did you notice that at all when you were a kid? Were you aware of that, or was it not until going back to them as an adult that you, you noticed that, In the, again, in the Little House books or anywhere?
1: Well, when I was a kid, um, it was weird to see anyone who looked like me in books or on TV. Mm-hmm. So yeah. anything that I saw mm-hmm. or read that represented me at all, I kind of latched on to. So, like, as an adult, I understand why... Pocahontas is problematic, or uh, why Little House is problematic. Mm -hmm. But as a kid, when that's the only representation you see, you kind of find yourself drawn to it. So there's a certain nostalgia about it. Oh, for sure. sure, it's problematic, but everything is a little problematic. Yeah. And I kind of think it's beautiful when people find... Problematic things and kind of reclaim them. Mm,
0: that's and, true.
1: Yeah, kind of make them their own for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Because Pocahontas was the only Disney princess who looked like me, and that's right. Or who yeah. who I felt like represented me outside mm-hmm. of say Esmeralda or <laughs> Jasmine, and you can kind of see the pattern there.
0: Yes, for sure. Yeah. Um.
1: Yeah. So. Yeah, it can be a little hard to deal with sometimes.
0: But. Absolutely. Yeah, and the, you know that going back and and revisiting. Uh, you know, the classics and, and the beloved children's books. You know, there are so many of these minefields, but there's also, you know, there's great stuff there for sure. I uh, I think I may have mentioned to you also offline before this that the Anne of Green Gables books, which were ones that I also loved as a child. I don't remember as much about those, but I know I read them. Yeah, and they, uh, you know, they have, again, looking back at it from an, an adult and a 21st century adult perspective, some quite problematic racism in them, like the the sort of the mentions of the the, the famous scene of Anne trying to dye her hair raven black, but dyeing it green instead. I'd completely forgotten a lot of people do. That's because a peddler who is very specifically described as a Jewish peddler yeah. has sold her this this obviously cheap and ineffective dye. Yeah. And there's all these, this is something I, I don't know enough about PEI culture at that time to know, it. there's all these incredibly both racist and Classes depictions of what the characters describe as French people, and I don't know if these are Acadian French people or if they are mixed French and Indigenous ancestry, but yeah. they are they're they're very much t- portrayed as like these people are not only poor but also. Too stupid and ineffective not to be poor.
1: You can kind of see why the French and the indigenous teamed
0: up. Oh yeah, they were both yeah. people that the
1: English weren't fond of.
0: Absolutely, and 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 the English were very fond of. You know, obviously, I'm doing a lot of research on on English colonialism because of the time period I'm writing about, and you know, creating these hierarchies of people with always the English at the top was, uh, you know, was 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 very big from uh, from the beginning of the colonial era. Funny that. Yeah, funny, funny how that worked out.
1: Like, I understand where a lot of people come from with what they find problematic and triggering. And it's a very personal, I think, thing mm-hmm. to grapple with when mm-hmm. the things that you love yeah, are problematic. Now, I was raised and came of age in the ironic haze of the 90s. <laughs> so nothing is sacred. I was... 13 when I started watching Daria, you know, I, nothing was sacred in my generation Uh and that's kind of helped me deal with a lot of these reminders. Like when you watch something Mm. from your childhood, you read something from your childhood and you're like, Oh, that didn't strike me before. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, I don't think... Like I said earlier, everything is a little bit problematic. Yeah,
0: and I guess if you had that sort of almost ironic distance or detachment from it.
1: You know, and I wholeheartedly love things. Uh Like, there's a lot of... um, I'm very passionate about a lot of my my childhood memories. Yeah. But um, it's... You kind of have to accept that if you're not going to take part in anything that's problematic, you're not going to take in any text that's problematic, you're never going to read or watch anything again. That's true, yeah. Because some of the greatest movies in the world are from the Weinstein Company. Well,
0: exactly. Um,
1: H.P. Yeah. Lovecraft was mm-hmm. notoriously anti-Semitic.
0: And actually Alice Walker, too, who you mentioned, The Color Purple has has been revealed to be quite disturbingly anti-Semitic in recent years. And that's, yeah, that's part of that, too, that whole, you know, separate the author from the work, and to what extent can you do that?
1: I think it's easier when the uh, author is dead. Yes. So looking at things like Poe or... Mm -hmm. Lovecraft, or mm-hmm. what have you, you can kind of separate what they were doing with what's become of their work because yes. it's so much outside of them. In that case, when the author is dead, the author is actually dead. Mm-hmm. Um, but when people are living, it's a little more troublesome, like with J.K. Rowling. Oh, obviously, my goodness. Yes, yeah. Big, big deal for my generation. Oh, I, yeah. I was aging up with the books. Uh-huh. I read the whole last book in one sitting. Like, yeah.
0: I was. And I was, so a, I was a parent of that genre. I had started reading the series before I had kids, just as a, yes, I know it's a kid's book, but I love fantasy. And then, you know, throughout the process of the books being published, I had kids to the point where then with the later books, I was reading them out loud to my kids. Yeah, So, you know, it's for for many of us at different stages of life they were such foundational texts
1: you know there are whole relationships i have in my life that are strongly founded on a love of harry potter
0: originally mm-hmm. so how do you how do you deal with that now
1: it's complicated mm. i don't take part in anything that would lend profit to jk rowling yeah
0: i think first that's a, and foremost that's a good rule for if sure. i
1: was ever going to pick up the books or pick up anything i would pick it up secondhand mm-hmm. or pick up knockoffs or yeah. something like that nothing that goes toward the author um but also it's like i said a really case-by-case basis you have yeah. to kind of sit with it understand what it is mm-hmm. and then decide whether you can live with that or not
0: yeah yeah, and, and
1: if you can't live with it, then it you might have to let it go. Like I just put all my Harry Potter books in storage yesterday, actually. Oh, really? And that was a big step for me yeah. because I reread them in my twenties. Yeah,
0: yeah, that is that is a big step. We still have them out on the shelves in this house. They're not, nobody's reading them right now, but we haven't put them away either. And I, just before J.K. Rowling went, you know, sort of full turf, um, I had bought a T-shirt that says, hoping to do some good in the world, Hermione Granger. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's not J.K. Rowling merch, it's fan art. Um, and I love wearing it because it's it's everything that I want to say, hoping to do some good in the world. But at the same time, I feel like, oh, but, you know, I, especially in my work, I deal with so many trans people, and I'm like, but do I want to be going around wearing a J.K. Rowling quote? <laughs> Even That's if, the you know? thing. Yeah. Um,
1: and it, with J.K. Rowling, it's so hard because... It's not like someone who comes out and says, oh, I made a mistake. Please inform me. She really doubled, tripled, quadrupled down on Mm -hmm. everything she's doing, right? Yeah,
0: that is very, that's very troubling. And I see what you mean, too, that it is easier when the author is dead because you can say these are the things they thought, this is the context they lived in you're not dealing with them issuing a new tweet every couple of weeks. No, exactly
1: not right. They're all, somehow the dead are a little less problematic yes, than the yeah, living.
0: They are. Although there's also the case, I think this came up with one of the earlier podcasts too, of when things come out about an author after their death like Marion Zimmer Bradley have you ever read Marion Zimmer no, Bradley? No I haven't Oh my gosh uh, Mists of Avalon is, is her big Oh, Oh I've heard uh, of that but she had a, a lot of others to it she was very beloved and certainly by feminists of my generation because Mists of Avalon is this very feminist retelling of the Arthurian story and then it, it turned out after she died that she was quite a horrific and abusive person and a lot of things were not talked about until after she died That so, is so hard Yeah it's, it's really complicated
1: It's a little bit like um you find out Roald Doll maybe wasn't the best dad, yes, you know. Yeah, yeah.
0: And also I think a bit anti Semitic too, also, which is yes, quite a common theme. England yeah. in that era yes, for, yeah, sure. for sure. So yeah, I think we all have have to uh, to grapple with this thing of uh, of authors that are problematic and representation that's that's problematic too. Yeah. Um, which kind of I guess feeds into a more positive question. I always like to ask people about um, What are books that you would like to be able to get other people to read? And that could be anything from a casual recommendation to, I wish I could press this book into everybody's hands.
1: Um, Under that last title, I mean, Tracing Ochre. Yes. I think everyone should, I think it should be required reading in high school. Mm. I think it would, I think it should be in universities, you know. I couldn't praise that book enough. For sure. Um, In terms of nonfiction, like Tracing Ochre, uh, Bob Joseph has been pretty instrumental in. Reshaping the conversation with settlers about Indigenous relations. That's his second book. Is called Indigenous Relations. Okay,
0: I'm not familiar with. Um, the, with he his wrote writing at all. 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act. Okay, I've heard the title. I yeah. didn't remember the author's name. But yeah. yeah,
1: even knowing like the bits that I knew from being involved with it, mm-hmm. there's so much in that book that I didn't understand was the case. Uh-huh. Um, and that's just 21 things out of all the
0: different all the things that there are.
1: So big act Uh but uh and indigenous relations is kind of suggestions of how to where to go from here what to do with these truths how to Mm -hmm. how to work collaboratively Mm -hmm. and what settler descendants
0: are responsible for i guess
1: but they uh he does it in a really accessible way they're Mm -hmm. very uh very good reads.
0: Yeah, um, I've heard Twenty One Things recommended so lot so many times that it is on my to read radar. But Indigenous Relations is one I hadn't, uh, I I wasn't aware of. So um, I think you, can, you can definitely get them at Chapters. Yeah, um, Half
1: Breed by Maria Campbell is a um, memoir. Oh
0: yeah,
1: it's a really really book. Is that
0: an older book? That a book that's been around for it's a while? It's been for I think a few years. Okay,
1: I don't think it's older. Older maybe it's a reissue. I'm not sure. Okay. But but um, I read that a couple of years ago, and it was. Mm-hmm. It's. Uh, I don't even want to say anything about it. I don't want to spoil it for him <laughs> Fair enough. Um, okay. In terms of fiction, um, locally, Douglas Goss uh, wrote a uh, book a number of years ago called Jackie Tar. Oh, okay. Which is a obviously a slur against mm-hmm. people who live in a, a certain area of the West Coast, Newfoundland, and it's a queer indigenous take on the. Term and what it means to be from this area on the west coast.
0: Okay.
1: Um, From the point of view of a queer man returning home Uh for a family business. Uh It's really, really beautiful. That sounds fascinating. It was gorgeously written. Um, I know Douglas. Wonderful, Uh wonderful writer. the Rez sisters and Dry Lips Out of Moved Capus Casing, along with anything Thompson Highway has ever written or done.
0: Yeah. Thompson
1: Highway is kind of a superstar.
0: Uh-huh. Absolutely. Um maybe not even kind of. Just a I superstar. I mean he races yeah.
1: dog sleds. Yeah. So his work has led to murder investigations. Uh-huh. Having conclusions. Like Wow. He's he's a phenomenal writer. Mm-hmm. And his work is uh, beautiful there's really no other word for it mm-hmm. um, anything by Yvette Nolan but particularly okay. Annie Mae's movement
0: okay now I'm not familiar with Yvette Nolan
1: Yvette Nolan is an uh, indigenous Canadian playwright oh, okay and she also writes librettos I don't know if you know the um, opera Shauna Dithit that took place here
0: yes I, I she writes see a libretto for that okay
1: Um, And she works in music and playwriting and I've worked with her in a couple of workshops and she's a beautiful human being Mm -hmm. and she really tackles indigenous issues in a way that's heartbreaking and really sticks with you. Hmm. yeah
0: I want so that seems like a natural transition to move into talking about your own work but were there any other book recommendations that we missed or, or things I mean this wanted to year
1: Michelle about? Goods, or was it last year the Michelle Goods? I had Five Little Indians and oh, Michelle yes. Good. I can't remember yeah. if it was this year or last year one Canada think Reads was,
0: yeah Yeah. Um, that's amazing
1: I actually haven't read that but my roommate is insisting that I read it so yeah. it's like on my bookshelf right now yeah it's amazing yeah
0: so yeah, the the talk of playwrights uh, made me want to veer into talking about your own work because of course I know you as a playwright. Yes, and we met in the theater world, uh, and you have uh, you have a play coming up that's very uh, very exciting I think, and I would love for you to talk about it and tell us a little bit about it and and how you came to. Uh, to get into this project, we'll get the
1: plug out of the way early. For it's, sure, yes. Um, called Stolen Sisters. Mm-hmm. It is about the lives of historical Beothic women.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's going up in the Heart Garden at Government House, Which August. Is a
0: lovely place for it.
1: Yep, the 16th to the 28th, I believe. Uh-huh. Um, we wanted to do it in a space that was meaningful, and the Heart Garden being a representation or, of um, not only the residential schools, but the indigenous people of Newfoundland yeah. as installed by a Lieutenant Governor, um, who has been phenomenal throughout this whole process. Yeah. Yeah, she really uh understands this kind of need I have to not to to reclaim a place at the table rather than scraping up a place for myself out of what's left over, you know? That's
0: that's a great way to put it. Yeah.
1: yeah. I think having it on the grounds at Government House where Damasduet was known to have stayed. Yeah. I think is a really powerful
0: symbol i mean government house is a it's a complicated and loaded place as a symbol as you know the symbol of english government and colonial government in in newfoundland absolutely
1: and i think it's beautiful that first light is right across the street from government house i think that's a real stand maybe not a intentional
0: one but it's it's certainly great that it's worked out that way it is it's a
1: real juxtaposition of of ideas
0: mm-hmm. yeah. um, I mean obviously podcasts sometimes get listened to later but I want this one released early enough <laughs> so that people can hear you talk about the play and still see it and in the show notes um, I always list all the books that we talk about and you know, if the person I'm talking to is a writer I'll put links to their work uh, so I'll put a link uh, in the show notes to where people can find out more about the play and, and buy tickets and hopefully go see it Fabulous. Um, but yeah tell me a little bit about the background of it and, and how you came to write this um, it started out of a place of a lot of rage,
1: mm-hmm. uh, maybe even rage that I didn't know I had. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of there. And I had, um, uh, I visited St. John's. I lived in St. John's a couple of times, but I was visiting St. John's and I saw a lot of representation of Shauna Dithit and Damasduit and just indigenous people in general that didn't sit right with me.
0: Hmm.
1: Shauna Dithit or DeMazduit, the red. Indian portrait that's yeah, yeah. on um Shauna Dithit tours. Yeah, I think so. Um, there's a couple of stores downtown that have some pretty racist caricatures on public display. Mm-hmm. And I've never heard anyone talk about them. And I was talking to a friend of mine when I was out here, I think it was 2019, and I said, you know, I bet Shauna Dithett would be pissed. Uh-huh. Sorry, swearing.
0: Oh, it's okay. <laughs> we, we have some swearing on the podcast.
1: Okay, <laughs> uh, that's cool. Um, I'll try and keep it... And like...
0: It's hard to talk about subjects that you feel genuine rage about without using strong language. I'll try and keep yeah. it like
1: PG-13. <laughs> um... I said, but yeah, she'd be kind of pissed off if she saw what her legacy had become. Mm-hmm. And I didn't write anything for about a year, but it kind of became the basis of what would Shauna did that say if she could see mm-hmm. what had become of her legacy and the legacy of the people. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she'd want to set the record straight, mm-hmm. so this script started out as something of between a stand-up comedy and a TED Talk, Uh and it's really morphed into something completely different, because in my research of the Beothic, I came across two other women and girls who really, their stories are so important, but they've, I'd never heard them before, Mm -hmm. and I considered myself to be somewhat up on my information about the Beothic. Right. You know, I did courses, for God's sake, but, uh, there was so much there that I didn't know, and I felt like their stories had to be told, too.
0: So tell us a little about who the, who the other two women are, besides Shanna. The, um, the
1: first act is featuring a little girl called Ube, who was about 10 years old, mm-hmm. when she was taken, kidnapped from her family. Mm-hmm. Uh, the account of it is pretty harrowing. She was bought by a family in Trinity Bay called the Stones, which is really problematic in my life because my husband's last name is Stone, and so I have to explain to my mother in life, she's listening to this, it's not about the family that comes from Trinity Bay, that area. Uh, They're called the Stones, that's their historical name. Um, Mm -hmm. They also owned a little boy from the West Indies. Mm. And Ube was taken to Poole, England, and died within a year of Mm. lung infection. So the first act is ube telling about what her life is like Mm -hmm. what it's like to live with the stones what it's like to go to england what it's like to know this this other little boy and what they have in common Mm -hmm. so really trying to capture what her life would have been like and since Mm -hmm. we don't have a whole lot of information on her a lot of her experience is mined from the experiences of other indigenous girls Mm -hmm. and other indigenous children and doing my research on ube it was pretty clear to me that she was the f- one of the first in a long line of what will become the residential school system in Canada.
0: Mm.
1: Like the treatment children of children being
0: stolen from their families, literally yeah. taken,
1: taking and screaming from the, their families. Wow. And
0: yeah, and you're right. Most of us, I think, haven't heard of her. Like I think when, you, when well, you mentioned her, I think I may have read like one sentence about her in a book at some point. Well, and
1: it's strange because the first language word list that we have comes from ube really and a lot of her words are different from the ones that the adults later gave Mm -hmm. but we have a lot of like that was our first contact the reverend clinch out of trinity who i believe brought vaccines to newfoundland for the first time i think so yeah um he recorded her
0: Mm -hmm.
1: her words and so we remember his name but no one's ever heard of Ube. yeah
0: yeah you
1: know so that's that's Ube and she was, she's the first part of my healing journey mm-hmm. when I started to, to address what it's like to lose your innocence and mm. to like find out things that maybe you were hidden from you before that you didn't understand before mm-hmm. and kind of the ignorance that comes with bliss. Yeah. So yeah.
0: that's who Ube that's is. That's really powerful. And then Shannon did And then Dithid. who's the other woman?
1: Um, the other woman is uh, Santu Tony who was a Mi'kmaq Indian woman, self-identified, sorry, um, interviewed by an American anthropologist named Frank Speck mm-hmm. in the 20s. And she claimed that her father was Biotic, born around 1800,
0: mm-hmm.
1: in the same place that... Um, What they were, she referred to as Red Pond. Right. Which would have been the the interior pond that's known as Beothic Lake now.
0: Right. Thank
1: God. (laughs) Um, And that would have made him born around the same time Shauna it was. Right. So she claimed direct ancestry. She Mm -hmm. was, he was, she claimed he was uh, raised in a Mi'kmaq family Mm -hmm. in hiding. And she was born after he met her mother. And her life was amazing. And if she, she was an indigenous woman who was, for a long time, a single mother. She had her own money. She made her own money in the twenties, mm-hmm. um, late, late 1800s, sorry. Mm-hmm. So she was a really interesting woman whose life just isn't known to us, and it's strange because there's actually a recording of her.
0: Yes, which I think is at the rooms. I think there's like a button you can press and play a little bit of her recording. I am recording. so
1: glad to know that because if, it's available on
0: YouTube. If it's the same one, there's, uh, it's been ages now since I've heard it, but I, I think there is um, a little piece there, a little display board that talks about a woman who said that her father was Biotic and this was a song she had learned from yep. him or something. Yep. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure it's at the rooms that I had heard that. I'll have to double check that and be be sure if that's, if that's correct. But, um, again, when you, when, when we talked about this, uh, before the podcast and, and you talked about Santutone, I was like, I didn't think I had heard of her, but then I had heard this little, this little fragment of song and, and it's interesting how, I mean, that's, this was a hundred years after Sean and Dithit that, that Frank Speck yeah. interviewed her, right? So that yeah. really complexifies our, our story of Beothic extinction. What is extinction? Yeah.
1: Yeah. what is a blood quantum you know yeah. it, it brings up such a host yeah, yeah. of things and you have to wonder why her story hasn't been told yeah. or why it isn't required reading yeah
0: exactly
1: so um santa became really the uh, the linchpin mm-hmm. of the entire piece she's um she was in her 70s when speck interviewed her and so mm-hmm. she's like she's an auntie she's a grandma she's mm-hmm. like a woman in the community who's an elder And I got to reflect a lot on the women in my life Mm -hmm. who were were elders to me, who were my aunties, some literally my aunties, some not even related to me, and just what their place was in the community Mm -hmm. and going forward. Yeah. And how, you know, we preserve parts of the culture. And while parts of the culture are lost there's still more of the culture that could be out there. It offers mm-hmm. hope. Yeah. She offers a way to to deal with the tragedy.
0: hmm Yeah, it doesn't erase the tragedy or say that it, you know, it's not a terrible thing that this culture was 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 largely erased. No, but we but, have to assume yeah. that they have there was joy in their lives. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And that's I mean we always do tell, you know, we tell this just as a tragic story, with it which it is, but then that also makes the Beothic kind of a tragic people and, and almost doomed to, doomed to extinction. They become
1: a symbol. They become yes. a simulacrum of themselves, Yeah, rather sure. than,
0: rather than real people with real, yeah, um,
1: yeah. Even the things that we know about Shauna Dithid, the amount of things I didn't know yeah. when I started writing her piece, that was the thing that surprised me probably the most. Like, of course, there were people I hadn't heard of, mm-hmm. but for someone who's considered the most famous woman in Newfoundland,
0: yeah, full yeah. stop. Yeah,
1: I think they did poll a few years ago.
0: Yeah, and she's one of the only two named women who has a statue in Newfoundland, and the other one is Amelia. Earhart, Who's not who even was from here? Yeah, uh, again, if you don't count the Blessed Virgin Mary, then who has lots of statues? If you don't count Catholic saints, then yeah, she's you know she's the only Newfoundland woman that we have have this uh, this memorial to. But at the same time, yeah, I guess there's a lot that's not known about her.
1: There are you you hear the story of. She was found, brought to St. John's, lived there for a few months, died a year later of tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. And you're like, that's very sad. And then you find out that she had lost most of her family to settler violence Mm -hmm. and that she had been shot a number of times and that she is recorded to have had a partner at some point in her life. She was 23 Mm -hmm. when she first went to live in exploits before she ever got to St. John's. Right. So she had partners Mm -hmm. in her life presumably
0: yeah
1: and it's just just, uh, so many things that you don't and she witnessed the kidnapping of demasduin yes
0: yeah
1: we don't really remember that or we kind of remember around it when we think of her so she had experienced so much tragedy in her life Mm
0: -hmm. and seen so much violence
1: yeah but was by all accounts a very smart level-headed Mm -hmm. good woman yeah. from everything we know about her. And I wanted to bring kind of that humanity that we don't think about when we necessarily think about Shauna Ditha. I mean, for a long time, I thought about her in the way everyone else did, but then somebody brought up that the Bialthik are kind of the first missing and murdered Indigenous women Mm. in North America.
0: Yeah, that's right. So... And the two Beothic that, that we know a lot about in popular culture, Shana, the Dindamassu, are both women. Yeah. So I guess that ties into the play being called Stolen, stolen Sisters. Sisters. yes. Yeah,
1: for sure. Yeah. It's um, very specifically about missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, but it's for stolen siblings, mm-hmm. really. There are so many young boys also. Yes. And men who go missing for no reason because of whatever... Reason in men who are incarcerated and women who are incarcerated at
0: mm-hmm.
1: at exacerbated rates
0: and, and, and uh, victims of police violence of who po- are disproportionately indigenous absolutely victims
1: of medical violence mm-hmm. yeah so it's there's a lot of stolen siblings and I want this I wanted to give these women a voice mm-hmm. that they haven't necessarily been given before mm-hmm.
0: yeah. Well, I am so looking forward to seeing this play, and I hope that everyone who listens to this podcast, if you hear it before the play is uh, is staged, you will also go and see Stolen Sisters. And it's going to be not just in St. John's, right? You're going to get to do it outside of uh, yeah, St. John's? Yeah, this
1: year we're going to uh, be bringing it to a number of places on the West Coast and to the Indigenous uh, communities there.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah,
1: we're working with those communities to to figure those, that out. That's early September.
0: Uh-huh. And
1: um fingers crossed next year we'll be able to tour it a little bit more extensively hopefully get out onto the west coast a little more right into central down to maya Bukek, mm-hmm. um and hopefully into labrador
0: that would be fantastic if we can get the funding for that so if if folks do miss seeing it uh this year there hopefully will be more opportunities which i think is great because i think it is uh uh it is a story that that so much needs to be told and needs to be seen i think so i hope so i hope people don't
1: just like it i hope they think about it I hope they feel it I hope it's something that speaks to everyone I hope I've written it in such a way that everyone takes something out of it that Mm. maybe wasn't there
0: before that's a great thing to aim for and I think it's very much going to be the case with this play thank you so much Lita for coming on here and talking about books and also telling us a bit about your play I really really appreciate it so happy thank you so much That wraps up my interview with Ulnu playwright and artist Leodon Helena, and I hope you are as excited about her play Stolen Sisters as I am and that you'll get a chance to see it. As I mentioned in the interview, um, I always uh, keep in the show notes a list of everything we talked about, and I'll also put some links to Leodon's work uh, and to information about the play, where to see it, where to buy tickets. Um, And as always, you can find the show notes if you go to my website, trudymorgancole.com and you click on the Shelf Esteem podcast link, it'll take you to a page that has a listing for every episode of the podcast and lists not only where you can listen to it, but also where you can read the show notes where I put all the interesting links and stuff. So as I said, I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as uh, I have, and as much as Leah Don and I enjoyed having it and sharing it. I'm going to be back next month with an in-house interview with my daughter, Emma Cole, where we're going to be doing another book swap. And until then, I would like you to read a good book and build your shelf esteem.